This week leading up to Good Friday and to Easter is considered around the world the holiest week for Christianity. It commemorates that final week in Jesus' earthly life where so many events happen, so much of his ministry crescendoed to this final week in his life. It was his most important week of ministry in the world. It was one week that changed the world, literally. This week that we commemorate changed the world forever. Did you know that the four Gospels focus a lot of attention on this one week? Three and a half years Jesus ministered, but on one week, big chunks of the Gospels are focused. Matthew spends eight of his 28 chapters on this one week. Mark spends 6 of 16 chapters, Luke 6 of 24, and John a whopping 10 of 21 chapters on this week. Today, Palm Sunday, we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, not to the events of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that Sunday, but rather, we've done that before, but rather this Palm Sunday, I want us to focus on some of the events that happened just prior to that and then afterwards that propelled Jesus toward the cross. Dr. John MacArthur asserts in his commentary that everything written up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew has been like one giant prologue, a mere introduction to the great conclusion of the Gospel, which is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. After all, I would ask you, isn't that why Jesus came to the world, right? He was born to die. We know that. He was born to die. Didn't he say so himself? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life a ransom, a payment for many. He was going to give his life as a payment for many. That was the purpose of his life. Of course it all crescendos to the cross. Christ's substitutionary death. Why do we say it that way? Because he didn't die for his own sins, right? He died for other people's sins, right? That substitutionary death is so important. It's not coincidental that there is a whole section right here in chapter 26 of Matthew just to set the stage for Jesus' arrival at the cross. Let's read this text together. Matthew 26, and we're going to read what looked like four independent stories through verse 16, but they all tie together around the theme, and I think you'll see that as we go along. Matthew 26, 1 to 16. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then... One of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Notice first Matthew comments that Jesus finished all these words. If you look backwards, this refers to the fifth and the last discourse that is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. It's called the Olivet Discourse, and it's chapters 24 and 25. If you love end times things, then uh, read chapters 24 and 25, but not right now. You can read that another time. Matthew, who typically would arrange his material and his gospel thematically rather than chronologically, set it up so that everything in the early part of this chapter, verses 1 through 16, speaks of one theme, and that is preparing Jesus for the cross, preparation of Jesus for his death. At this point in Christ's life, all of the healing ministry that we know he's famous for, all of the the vast majority of the teaching that he has done is kind of behind him. He's taught the masses. He's gone village to village. He's healed every kind of disease that's behind him. Now he is ascending to the apex of his ministry, the main reason he came to the world. He's coming to the summit, to the cross, to the grave, then out of the grave and beyond to the ascension. In these providential workings here in Christ's life in chapter 26, Jesus is propelled toward the cross, and yet he willingly cooperates, and he's very aware of what is happening. He willingly laid down his life for us, thus wanting in that sacrifice for us to see the love of God for us. There is no other religion that has a God like this. There is no other God that would send his only begotten son to pay the penalty for people who are his enemies. This is beyond imagination. Let us never get tired of speaking and understanding and talking about and preaching on the gospel. I pray today's message will remind all of us, myself included, of God's precious love for us. There are four movements toward the cross, and I'll give them to you once and then I'll repeat them again. There's the Passover approaching. There is the plot by the leaders, the precious burial ointment, and then the price of the traitor. The Passover approaching, the plot by the leaders, the precious burial ointment, and the price of the traitor. Let's start with that first movement, the approach of the Passover. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Let me read them again. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So this sub section here could be subtitled, Brutal Death Coming, Brutal Death Coming, for that is what it predicts for the Son of Man. Now, you know that Jesus regularly used that title, the Son of Man, for himself. The Son of Man, if you read backwards, is going to return in glory with all of the might and glory of the holy angels, and he's going to set up his kingdom. That's said in chapter 25. But that same Son of Man right now, first, he's going to be crucified. 
And notice the little notation in verse 1. It says, after two days. That makes most scholars place this prediction by Christ still on Tuesday of Holy Week. The Passover then would be on Thursday night. So here we have not just another announcement about the crucifixion, but even the timing of it. The timing of the Passover and the timing of the crucifixion that was coming. Here we see that Jesus knew and was aware he was on a clock. He knows that his death will happen. He knows when his death will happen. He's aware. He's being moved along. There's divine energy that goes along with the happenings that are happening around him. He knows it's an invisible hand. He's cooperating with it. He's predicting it. Christ is the Passover lamb, and he knows when he's going to be slaughtered at Passover. Now, you know what the Passover was. It was the celebration of the deliverance of the Israelites out of bondage in the land of Egypt, right? The mighty hand of God moved through Moses to deliver his own people. Exodus chapter 12 describes its inauguration and procedure. The Passover lamb was selected on the 10th day of the month, and then it was to be sacrificed at at twilight on the 14th day of the month. The blood was then applied to the doorposts of their homes. And when the angel of death came through the land of Egypt, he would see the blood applied in obedience to the door, and the angel would pass over that home, right, and not kill anyone in that home and spare the firstborn son. The angel of death would not affect that house because they exercised faith in the blood of the lamb, a precious spotless lamb. They had to put faith in the blood. They had to put and apply the blood to the post, otherwise there would be death in the home. With the approach of the Passover, Jesus would be that sacrificial lamb, and he would put to end all of the other sacrifices that would be made. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul wrote that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. He's been killed and slaughtered for us. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 reminds us, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, that is the blood of Christ. He was the lamb of God with precious spotless blood. Far more precious than gold or silver, the blood of Jesus Christ trickling down Calvary's cross resulted in the death of the Lamb of God and made payment to redeem believers from sin's cruel mastery. Christ predicted his own betrayal. He let himself be handed over to crucifixion. He even said it, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be handed over. He let himself that happen to him. Handed over is the verb paradidomi. It indicates a betrayal His his death would not just simply happen against him. You know, there are all these movies and all these documentaries about the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, and they get it all wrong because they view Jesus as a nice man, but under the circumstances, and he had no control in this poor revolutionary. He got caught up in in a lot of political maneuverings, and he just got killed. That is a very wrong view of the true historical Jesus. Jesus knew what was going on, predicted what was going on, laid his own life down willingly. In many passages around there, he shows himself in control of the events. He would not be captured by outside forces. He laid himself down willingly. He would not be outmaneuvered. He would not be outmuscled. He would not be tricked or trapped. He would be betrayed. And he knew it was coming. Many looking at the events 
about to unfold might conclude that the prognosis for the Lord Jesus did not appear too good. But the amazing thing is here, we do not see Jesus bemoaning his treacherous and grievous circumstances. The crucifixion would result in great harm to his physical body. Can you just imagine that? If you had that in your future, you knew that was coming up. The Romans were going to take you and they were going to have zero mercy on you. They would brutalize your body, mock you, spit at you, strip you, put thorns on your head, whip you until chunks of your flesh would be off your back, nail you to a cross, erect you naked in front of others, mock you, gamble for your clothes. He knew all of that was coming and he's peaceful. He's calm. He's amazing. Christ is amazing. I say he's the true Superman. He really is. It was such a cruel form of punishment. Good citizens of Rome sometimes wouldn't even bear to look at people hanging on the cross. It was too disgusting. It was too offensive. It was not a nice electric chair to die in. Zap and you're gone. It was hours of suffering, sometimes days. And it was humiliating to the max. I mean, the Romans perfected this. Yet Christ is fully cognizant of what awaits him. He purposely embraces the torture. Here's the key thing I want you to hear. For our sake. For me. For you. Does God love me? Does God love you? Folks, he couldn't say it any better. And though the disciples unbelievably continue in their density here and still don't understand the plan, even at this late point, I mean, he's telling them, two days I'm going to be crucified. They still don't get it. I mean, they really were into jockeying for position, the kingdom that's going to come and all of that. They're just missing it here. Christ's prediction of his death would remind them afterwards Jesus was never taken by surprise. He was not a misguided revolutionary. He was not a well-meaning but misled mystic. He was not a good teacher making bad calculations about when to reveal himself to the world. All of that stuff isn't even worthy of the history pages. How dare they write those things about Jesus? He was the only begotten Son of God on a mission, laying down his life for us, on a divine clock for us just as he repeatedly predicted. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, he said it. Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, he said it. Listen again to Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, that's the Romans, to mock and scourge and crucify him. Mock and scourge and crucify him. I mean, he knew it. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Wow. Also, Matthew chapter 21, he taught a whole parable about how he was going to be rejected and then come back. Starting with Peter's confession of Jesus as the Son of God in chapter 16 of Matthew, with like a rhythm or cadence, the Lord had warned his disciples of his impending crucifixion. We're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. We're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed. We're going to Jerusalem, it's going to happen. Now he's saying, two days from now, we'll celebrate the Passover, and I will be betrayed and crucified. Jesus' predictions were ingrained in the historical narrative. It's so bogus when TV programs and documentaries just portray him as a poor victim. He knew what was going on around him. It was all set up. It was prophecy. How many times do people need to be told? God 
planned it. God propelled it. Jesus cooperated with it. That's the first movement. The Passover is approaching. The second movement is the plotting by the Jewish leaders. The plotting by the Jewish leaders. Hone in on verses 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So these are politicians. They're, they're trying to keep power. We know about that, don't we? Say anything, do anything, even sacrifice your own country's safety for your own political power. That happens. Well, that's what these guys are doing. Notice the gathering at the high priest's house. Concerning the word then in verse 3, that does not mean that this is the first time that there had been plots made against Jesus Christ. Matthew told us about plots way back in chapter 22 during the time of the debates in the temple. Way back in Matthew chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, it tells us that when Jesus was in Galilee, some of the people there were making plots against him. The actual time of this plot may be more specifically indicated in John 11 where it says right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Caiaphas pulls the people aside and says, what are we doing? He's raising people from the dead. Everyone's going to believe in him. It's expedient that one man die for the nation. We've got to do away with him. So who was it that was there with the high priest in his house plotting against Jesus? Well, many of these, many of these mentioned were on the Sanhedrin the ruling council of the Jews, under Roman rule, that is. They condemned Jesus to death eventually. By the way, here you have the future judge and jury plotting the arrest and death of Jesus. Think about that, right? So you have the judge and jury saying, we're going to arrest him and we're going to do this so then we can condemn him from death. What kind of, this, is a, this is a monkey trial. This is ridiculous. No, no justice here. The chief priests are the first ones mentioned. They are the ruling priests who tried to silence the children singing Hosanna in the temple on Palm Sunday. They're also the ones who challenged Christ face-to-face on what authority do you do these things? Do you cleanse the temple? And and he he put them quiet because he said, I'll tell you if you could tell me whether John's baptism was from God or not, and he silenced them. Also mentioned are the elders of the people. This probably was not the full Sanhedrin at this time since some of the members on the Sanhedrin did not consent to the death of Jesus. But the most important figure that is mentioned here is Caiaphas, the high priest. He's the son-in-law of Annas, according to uh, John chapter 18 and verse 13. At this time, according to Luke chapter 3 and verse 2, it's like there were two high priests. Caiaphas was the official high priest, but his father-in-law was pulling the strings behind the scenes, a very powerful man. And so he was considered high high priest as well. The high priest functioned like the president of the Sanhedrin, the ruling party of the Jews, and he would conduct the business and he would would lead them in their decision-making as well. But Caiaphas here notices front and center, and that's important because every time this guy is mentioned in the Gospels, he seems to be plotting the death of Jesus. Caiaphas, by the way, was a family name. His name was Joseph Caiaphas, and they actually found his ossuary, in Israel, uncovered it. So his historicity has been confirmed by archaeology now. Interesting, they found his bones. They still can't find Jesus' bones, right? (laughs) He was a cruel and he was a decadent man, interested in power and position only. He didn't really love his country. Notice also the place of the gathering was in the courtyard of the high priest. The Greek noun that is used here is aule. It most likely refers to the courtyard in Caiaphas' home, not a palace. If you have the NIV or other translations, they suggest it might have been in a palace. Caiaphas was not a king. He was a, he was a priest, so this was in the courtyard of his home. 
What was the purpose of the gathering? Well, that's clear. They were plotting. They're plotting to get rid of this Galilean to the north. They didn't need him. He was, he was bothersome to their, their plans. He challenged their authority. He exposed them for being ignorant of the Word of God. Chapter 21 and 22, he won the debates with them. It says they were afraid to ask him any more questions. He put them all in their place. I mean, these groups that came forward to debate with Jesus in the temple, these are the formal groups in Israel. One group is pulling out their best punch that they can give at Jesus, their best argument, and he refutes them immediately from the Scripture, and they're like, huh. Another one steps forward, and, and he deals with them, and they're like, they're silenced. Another group steps forward, and he silences them. He makes them all look like they don't know God's will. They, they can't lead the people. He just dismantled them. By the way, Jesus was not easy to get along with. He wasn't. He was a debater of truth. They put people in their place. That's Christ-like to debate truth. He did it. But they're back here and they're plotting. They want to get rid of him. They loathed Christ. They hated him. Do you have people in your life that hate Christ today? Just hate him. I think a lot of the... uh, politics that is moving against Christianity these days is moving against Christianity because they hate Christ. I think that spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well in our country. I really do. But here we see their plot with, basically it's to take shape with two actions. They want to seize Christ, that is arrest him, and they want to do it in a way that will not incite the crowds. They want to do it by stealth. They say not during the festival. We don't want a riot to occur among the people. Of course, during the feast, the Passover, this is their greatest feast. Jerusalem is swelled in size. Messianic expectations were always high in those days. Many had been believing in Jesus. Goodness, he'd done so many miracles. He was, he was a popular prophet in the eyes of the people. Just remember how he was received on Palm Sunday. That was a show of power coming into the city with people singing his praises. Save us now. That's what Hosanna means. Furthermore, they remembered that there were uprisings in the temple at Passover many years earlier after the death of Herod the Great in 4 B.C. And because of that uprising, Herod's son, Archelaus, killed about 3,000 Jews that were participating in the Passover. 3,000 were slaughtered. They didn't want that to happen. They didn't want any kind of a problem like that. They knew the problems that these hot-headed Jews could cause. They, They understood their own people. The uh, expositor's commentary points out that the leaders were right to fearing the people. Jerusalem's population swelled perhaps fivefold during the feast, and with religious fervor and national messianism at a high pitch, a spark might set off an explosion. You know how it is when everyone is tense, just that one thing could happen, and then boom, 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 what's happening? And it's out of control. They can't control it. They don't want that to happen. They don't want that to happen. So they want to wait, not during the festival. Let's not arrest them during the festival. Just a bad plan. Let's just not do it. Now, that's not how it worked out, is it? That was their plan. That was their plotting. But that's not how it worked out. Because when Judas came to them and offered them to betray him, that was just too good of an offer for them. It gave them an opportunity they could not refuse. But remember, despite what the chief priests might be planning, all of this is going to work out like Jesus said. Two days we'll eat the Passover and then I'll be hand it over. God is sovereign over everything. Where's his hand in all of this? Invisible. It's an invisible hand, but his hand is working. 
We pray and we don't see God do anything, right? But things change. Who changes those things? We did. No, you didn't. God does. God works. His invisible hand, the hand of providence, we call it. It's always working. And here it's working. And that's why the scriptures build our faith because we could see this event happened, this event happened, this event happened. But it's all guided by an invisible hand. Then, of course, their second action after seizing them was they wanted to what? Kill them. They wanted to get rid of them. Ultimately, that's what they wanted. They wanted to murder Jesus. Officially, so it would not be counted as murder. They were plotting a heinous act. There has been no greater crime committed in the history of humanity than the murder of the Son of God. In John eleven fifty, it gives Caiaphas' words. He even says it. He says, this is Caiaphas, the high priest. It is expedient for you that one man die for the people. He meant the Jews. And that the whole nation not perish. We got to get rid of him to preserve our nation. Now, what did he mean? He meant we want to make sure the Romans don't get angry at us and, and we could keep our privileged position. But God, because he was the high priest, had him say that for an entirely different reason. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was going to die to preserve the nation of Israel. By the way, there's always going to be a nation of Israel. Why? Because Jesus died for it. And that nation's going to be preserved. Lo and behold, it has been preserved. And Jesus, when he comes back, is coming back to that nation. But he saved not only that nation, but he saved also the Gentiles like us who believe in him, right? God made Caiaphas speak a prophecy he didn't even understand. (laughs) I love it. I love it. God was in charge. All right, movement number three. The third movement forward is the precious burial anointing, and that's in verses 6 through 13. Look at verse 6. But when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. We could subtitle this section, Body Preparation, Body Preparation. The scene now has gone to Bethany. Bethany was a village on the Mount of Olives, about two miles east of Jerusalem. Jesus was staying in Bethany throughout the festival, and this gathering was at the home of Simon the leper. He was not a leper anymore, by the way. By the way, this is not leopard. This is leper, a skin disease. You know, it's like I remember when I was a kid, I was like, he was a leopard? I don't get it. No, he's a leper. But he's not a leper anymore. That was like a nickname he had because he was cured of this awful skin disease. If it were not cured, by the way, he wouldn't even be allowed to be in contact with others so they wouldn't be in his home. So I would guess the meal was probably even given in deep gratitude to Jesus for having healed him in commemoration of him. Well, during this meal, a woman, she's not named yet, comes and anoints Jesus with a costly perfume, and this this just ends up being one of the most precious scenes in all of the life of Jesus because it has a precious ointment with a precious act of worship. The woman is not named here. It's not even named. She's not even named in Mark, and that's kind of strange because Jesus promised that her name would be remembered for this act. This woman would be remembered. So it's kind kind of interesting that Her name is not given here. But sure enough, the Holy Spirit made sure that the last gospel that was written, the gospel of John, put her name in. John chapter 12, verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So this woman is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. 
Now, there is some confusion over whether Matthew, this account here in Matthew, and John are recording the same account because they seem very similar in details, but they seem to occur at different times and in different locations. John, in his gospel, has it occurring on Saturday before Palm Sunday, and Matthew, it seems, has it happening during the Passion Week. And John's account seems to place it at the home of Lazarus, but Matthew says it's at the home of Simon the leper. But if we understand that Matthew arranged his material thematically and John arranged his material chronologically, since when you read the Gospel of John, you see that he has a lot of chronological markers in it and Matthew doesn't, then the harmony between the two accounts is very easy to achieve. So this took place not on Tuesday, but took place uh, earlier on the previous Saturday. And there's no need to try to postulate maybe Simon was another name for Lazarus or something like that. When people try to harmonize, they sometimes do strange things. Or maybe Simon was the name of Lazarus' father or something like that. That's all just speculation. Because John does not say in his account that this took place at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, only that it was in Bethany, and uh, Bethany was the town where Lazarus lived, and that they were present at that time. Now, Bethany was not a large town. It was kind of a small town. And Jesus probably would have had many friends there. He would have been popular in the little town of Bethany. And so any meal with Christ would likely have attracted people from other homes and his closest friends from that town. And Martha serving at someone else's home, well, that's in keeping with what women did in that culture. Even visiting women would serve a meal. If Simon was unmarried due to the fact that most of his life he had been a leper, then Martha's presence there would have helped him and would have been a welcome helped by him. So this is likely the same account because it's so, all the details are so strikingly similar and they can be harmonized. And Mary's act was a beautiful act. If you look at verse 7, a woman came with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. This is just amazing. She took this special jar and, and, and poured out this ointment right on the body of Jesus, right on the head of Jesus, right there in the house, right in front of everybody. And the jar was no jar. It was an alabaster vial, perfect housing, lovely little vial for beautiful ointment for the Lord Jesus Christ. The vial itself was costly. Most likely it was a long-necked vial made of translucent stone with fine carvings on that. They found some of them. And some of them have been five to ten inches high that they've discovered. And it contained something even more precious, a very costly perfume. Mark sets the value at 300 denarii. That's a year's wages. Think of going to the mall, ladies, with a year's wages and spending all of that. Just pouring it out. John 12, 3 tells us it was a pound of ointment of spikenard. The nard plant was grown in India in the Himalayan mountains, a long way from Israel. And the oil extracted from it came from the nard's roots. So this was not the -the run-of-the-mill Israelite brand. (laughs) This perfume was special. It may have even been a family heirloom. But to the pragmatist, to the tightwad, The unthinkable then happened. People might have been eyeing that vial, like, what are they going to do with that vial? What are they going to do with that vial? That thing could pay for ministry for years. She breaks the neck of the vial, 
pours it out, evidently all of it, on Jesus' head as he's reclining at the table. Now, at a Jewish banquet, it actually was common to have a small amount of oil put on the head and the shoulders of a guest. That enhanced the atmosphere a little bit, you know, spread a pleasant aroma around the room. But a whole jar of this very costly and potent stuff Well, John chapter 12, verse 3 says the fragrance permeated the whole house. I bet it spilled out into the streets. John indicates that it was put on Jesus' feet as well as his head, and it was wiped with her hair. This is just an amazing act of loyalty, of lowly worship, of undying love. For the Savior. Dr. Hagner in the Word Biblical Commentary describes it as, quote, a lavish gesture of devotion. It was an act symbolizing the greatest reverence. She was just, just worshiping Christ with everything that she had, taking her most precious belonging and in front of everyone just basically saying, I am worshiping His greatness. But the disciples didn't see it this way. The disciples didn't like this. Notice their reaction in verses 8 and 9. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Hmm, yeah. You know how it is when everyone's saying, you know, we should be giving money to the poor. Are you giving money to the poor? People want to tax us to give money to the poor. Are you giving money to the poor? They want to use our money to give to the poor. They don't want to just, why don't you just give to the poor? Well, they had a complete uniform reaction against it. They were indignant. And they started to murmur against Mary. She just did this great act of worship. And, and it looks like the disciples collectively, they're like, what did she do? What a waste. Now, John lets us know that Judas's voice was either first to speak or the loudest to speak. Judas probably thought that since he was the treasurer of the little gang, that he should have had the right to get the money in a little bit. But John chapter 12 and verse 6 reveals what Judas's motives were. It says Judas said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a, what, a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer for what was put into it. He was pilfering all the way along. And he just wanted more to be in there for himself. But Matthew lets us know it wasn't just Judas. It was all the disciples who dissented against this. And that's one of the reasons we know the Bible is the word of God because the so-called heroes that wrote the Bible, Peter and all those guys, they're, they're kind of told on here, you know? They, 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 they look kind of thick-headed here. They weren't getting it. The disciples, again, with limited vision, They saw only the material value in the jar and not the spiritual value of what was happening to honor Christ. Dr. John Walvoord makes the point, undoubtedly the precious ointment had been a treasure held in the family for some time and the reckless abandon with which she dedicated it to the anointing of Jesus was not a senseless extravagance but an act of supreme devotion. End quote. So Jesus quickly comes to the defense of Mary in verse 10. Look at it. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. That's an amazing statement. She probably was discouraged by the rebuke of the disciples. 
However, Jesus evaluated what she did entirely differently. He said, she has done a good act to me. I think this probably thrilled her heart to know how Jesus received it. What they saw as a waste, Jesus saw as an act of sacrificial worship. For Mary, there was nothing too great to give up for her master. And then he adds those words about the poor. You know, poverty is not going to be eliminated until the Messiah's kingdom. People say they want to eliminate uh, world hunger. We already have the technology to eliminate world hunger. Why are we not eliminating it? Because we're sinful. By the way, this is another indication the Bible is the Word of God. How would someone know 2,000 years ago what technology would be developed, how it would be used, and whether or not poverty would be eliminated in the world? He said, you always have the poor with you. And guess what? He was right. There's a lot of poor in the world today. And please don't read this as if Jesus was callous towards the poor. I mean, he had healed the poor, right? He had given his life to the poor. He had preached good news to the poor, right? He knew the laws of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7 and following. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, if any in your towns or in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart. Nor close your hand from your poor brethren, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend to him. But Jesus was saying this was an act of worship. And it could only be done when Jesus was here with them. Jesus would not be there with them much longer. I bet you, I bet you many of them wished that they could have had him longer, right? And now they understood what Mary, after he was gone, they understood what Mary did. Oh, I would break 10 vials for Jesus if I could have him in person and have his body there and put oil on his body and just fall at his feet and kiss his feet. And while I wouldn't be able to wipe my hair, but whatever it is, just, <laughs> just show devotion to him in any way that we can. Just lavish and give. Jesus, you, you loved us and you gave everything to us. Everything that I have is yours but he was going to be taken from them. It teaches us that worship is a greater priority even than giving to the poor. Some churches are messed up in their priority. They're starting hospitals, they're feeding the poor, but they're not teaching the word of God so the people will worship God properly. A lot of the liberal denominations, they are very big on helping the poor and very small on building up people's faith in the Bible that leads to worship of God, and that is the wrong priority. That's not what Jesus wants. In the end, God will take care of all the poor. To those who have believed in him, the poor will have riches beyond belief in the next life. But isn't there a little bit of a pragmatist in some of you, too, as you're reading this? And you're like, I'm kind of with the disciples on this. What a waste. Imagine someone wanting to spend some lavish amount for the worship service when there are people in need. Would you say, that's a waste, That's a waste of money. That's an act of worship, brothers and sisters. God is worth it. Now, it's true that this building's not the same thing as Jesus' body, but it's that act of devotion, that act of giving, that act of sacrifice, that act of spending oneself for the act of worshiping. That's That's what he's commending here. And, of course, in this case, there's more to it. The meaning of the act is given in verse 12. This was a precursor for Jesus' burial. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. There it is again. He's telling the disciples what's going to happen. 
She's preparing me for burial. That must mean that it's pretty soon, right? The Jews would prepare their dead with washing and anoint with fragrant oils and perfumes the body and then wrapped it in a linen. That's what they would do to the body. They honored the body. They always honored the body in death because they didn't believe the body was evil like the Greeks and the Romans did. Mary was doing the preparation for the burial ahead of time. Now, a good question is, did Mary know what she was doing? Or was this how Jesus interpreted it? Um, We're not told explicitly. It makes sense that given the close relationship Mary had to Jesus, particularly, you notice every time you see Mary, she's intensely focused on Jesus and his teaching. We're told that in Luke chapter 10, verse 39. She's getting the meaning of the things that Jesus is saying. After all, Jesus has been explicitly saying, I'm going to die. Somebody surely there was there that understood he's about to die. I mean, the disciples didn't understand that, but here's a woman that's getting things where the men, is not getting, the men are not getting things, right? Let's hear it for the ladies. She grasped what, what they were not grasping, I think, that Jesus was about to die. But who would listen to her? Mary was not caught up with the selfish jockeying for positions in the kingdom like the disciples were. She was focused on the mission of Christ. She was front row kind of listener. I want to know every word that he says. And I want to know what it's about. And for that, she was promised to be remembered. The memory of her, that act, verse 13. Look at his promise, truly. So he underscores this. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. That is amazing. By the way, there's another indication the Bible is the Word of God because 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, this gospel will be preached in the whole world. And guess what? It's being preached in the whole world today in one form or another, underground, on radio, somewhere it's being preached. How would Jesus know that? How would He know He wasn't just another guy from the Middle East that started a religion and was going to die out in 100 years or two years or whatever? How would He know that? Because it's the Word of God, beloved. There's evidence right there. And he said, wherever the gospel goes and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is preached along there, they'll tell the story of this woman who poured out a vial of perfume to prepare him for his death and prepare him for his burial. What an amazing act. Jesus was right. And Jesus always honors acts of faith. When you stick your neck out and you sacrifice in your worship and your devotion for God... The Lord Jesus takes note of that act of faith. He takes note of that act of devotion. When you're doing something no one else is doing, when you're sticking your reputation out because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I think the Lord Jesus sits up a little taller and he takes note of an act like that. And that's beautiful in his sight. You'll notice how few times Jesus ever compliments anybody in the Gospels. I remember trying to figure that out one day. I was like, why didn't Jesus like compliment people more. You know, we're in the day and age where we compliment one another all the time. Oh, you're the greatest, man. You did really good. And we think we just say positive things to people all the time, and that's what God wants us to do. Jesus didn't do that. But when someone exercised great faith, like that Gentile centurion that said, you don't even need to come to my house. I'm a man of authority. Just speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And he, stood, he took a step back, and he said, truly in Israel, I have not seen faith like this. And he complimented the dude in front of the others. But not very often. 
And here this woman is getting lavish praise from Jesus for, for faith, for her insight, and for her sacrifice and her devotion. Please know that he'll do that for you as well. Fawcett's Bible Dictionary notes this, in lands distant as India, from whence the perfume had come, shall her gift of it to her Lord be told. So beautiful, isn't it? God honors acts of faith. Well, that was another movement towards the cross, the preparal for him, and the last movement is the price of the traitor, verses 14 through 16. And after all that beauty, here we get all this ugly. This is ugly. Verses 14 through 16. This is ugly. Maybe we should just skip it. Maybe we shouldn't read it. But we have to go. We have to cover the good and the bad and the what? The ugly. That's what the Bible does. Again, another indication it's the Word of God, right? Because it doesn't tell us all these people were good. It tells us their faults as well. It tells us our faults as well. So it's another indication the Bible is speaking from an impartial God, and it tells the ugly. Here it is. Here's the ugly. Then one of the 12, named Judas Iscariot, You notice no one calls their kids Judas anymore? (laughs) Went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him, to hand him over to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. Wow, 30 pieces of silver. Clink, clink, clink. That's nice. I could buy a lot with that. I hear silver's, uh, it kind of keeps its value through the years. Yeah, that's a good investment. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. What do we say about Judas Iscariot? What do we say about this man, this traitor? He's one of the 12. That's shocking. One of the 12. Did you catch that? One of the 12 hands selected by Jesus to follow him? One of the 12 who traveled the roads with him. One of the 12 who was sent out two by two into the villages to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. One of the 12 who saw Jesus' multiple miracles that could never be explained even by his enemies. One of the 12 who stood by while Jesus was casting out demons. One of the 12 who listened to the teachings of Christ. One of the 12 who touched the body of Jesus. One of the 12 went to the chief priest to betray him. Judas's journey incognito to the Jewish leaders may appear to be a misalliance. A disciple of Jesus going to talk to one of the chief priests? These are groups that don't get along. But there is the confluence of evil intent between the two here. Isn't it interesting how people who are absolutely Bitter enemies in the world can find friendship in their hatred to Jesus Christ and in their hatred of the Bible and in their hatred of righteous living and in their hatred of you because you bear the name Jesus. What was Judas's motive in betraying Jesus? Well, that's an easy question to answer. M-O-N-E-Y. Mullah. I think there was a breaking point with Judas when he saw all of that money being wasted on Christ. I think something snapped in him where he said, it's just not going to pay to follow Christ. 
He was in it for the money all the way along. There are a lot of people like that in church. They're in it for the money. Watch out for them. John MacArthur, who did his, one of his papers, I think it was his thesis on the life of Judas Iscariot. Why do you pick that as your, as your topic to do your great magnum opus, you know, on Judas Iscariot? He writes, in contrast to Mary, who gave an open testimony of loving worship, Judas Iscariot gave clandestine testimony of betraying hypocrisy. For the price of a slave, and he says, see Exodus 21:32, Judas not only sold out his teacher and leader and friend, but betrayed the very Son of God who had come to be his Savior. Upon getting his money, the text tells us, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray him. What are you going to do, Judas? Judas, oh Judas, this will not result in the demise of the Son of God, for he will be raised from the dead. Judas, this will result in your eternal damnation. Judas, oh Judas, what a fool. What a fool. To spurn the love of God for pieces of silver. Would you rather have pieces of silver than the love of God? Jesus knew. He even said later in this very chapter, if you look forward to verse 24, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Wow. What is hell like? It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. This is tough stuff. Four movements toward the imminent death of Christ. The sign of the approaching Passover, the plotter's behind the scenes, the precious ointment, the shining and glittery pieces of silver. God was working providentially behind all these events to move and propel Christ to the cross at this exact time. And I say it again, he did it for us. For us. Do you believe the Lord God loves you personally? I'm not asking you if God loves the world. Do you believe the Lord God loves you personally? Can Can you take the sorrows and disappointments in your life and understand that those are not given to you? Those were not, those did not happen to you to express God's displeasure with you or God's lack of love for you or God's taking his eyes off of you or God's neglect of you, that you can't understand it that way. Listen, I know a little something about pain. I know a little something about disappointment. I know a little something about trial. And I know the temptation to be able to say, because this is happening to me, therefore God does not love me. Beloved, God loves you. He loves you particularly. He loves you. He knows your name. He sent Christ to the cross for you. He organized all these events so that he would end up on that cross. Jesus went along there to rescue you. He's going to bring you to himself in his father's home. He's going to lavish all good things upon you. He has a future for you that you and I can't even imagine. We try, but we can't. He loves you. He's loyal to you. He's committed to you. That's why the cross. 
And we need to believe that. And when we go out to talk to other people, we need to tell them of the love of God, yes? And we need to firmly believe that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, what? Everlasting life. God who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with Christ, with Christ, freely give us all things? We're going to get everything because of the love of Christ. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you are apathetic to the death of Jesus Christ, What are you you waiting to hear? Someone has loved you to secure your eternity. Someone has shown commitment to you. God the Father arranged all of these events, even the evil plotting of evil men and, and the betrayal of Judas to get you to heaven. How can you be apathetic to that? 2 Corinthians 5, 15. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I pray this Easter season and Good Friday and throughout this whole week, and as you meditate on all of this that Christ has done, I pray that prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians in chapter 3, that you may know in your inner person the love of God the heights and the depth and the, the breadth and the width, all the dimensions of the love of God. And then he says that you would know the love of God which is unknowable because you can't probe the depths of that love. But you know what you can do? You could try. You can try. And may the Spirit of God in your inner being help you to just rest and rejoice in the love Christ has for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for loving our pitiful souls and saving us from our foolish decisions and crowning us with life and glory. To you, we say Hosanna, and to you, we say praise, praise the name of Jesus. Amen.